welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's guest is Dr. Adam Rodos. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Medicine at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He's also one of the inaugural ASEP Fellows in Administration, Quality, Informatics, and Policy. And what we've asked him to do today is come and talk about SEP1, give us an update on the CMS measure, and connect it to the work that the ASEP Equal Sepsis portion has been doing. I do want to note up front that there are a handful of spots where internet lag led to some doubling of the audio, but those portions are still intelligible and they contain really important information, so we've left them in there. I'm going to get out of the way and let Adam take it away. As you mentioned, we want to spend some time today talking about what we've learned from Equal participants and how we can move the needle on something that most of us are spending a lot of time thinking about. I want to spend a little time talking about the background of SEP1. We're not going to go into an overload of detail there because that's available elsewhere. But we do want to talk a little bit about what the national performance has looked like in regards to this measure, as well as what we've seen from the ED specifically. Most, but not all, sepsis cases present through the emergency department. And then finally, we want to focus the bulk of our time on looking at what you can do in your emergency department to improve performance on this measure. I don't need to tell this audience that sepsis is something that we see very frequently. It's a leading cause of death among patients who are admitted to the hospital, and it's also very expensive. As clinicians, we're used to seeing sepsis alerts, and sepsis has increasingly become a public health campaign as well. CMS released the SEP1 measure in October 2015 as part of the National Hospital Inpatient Quality Measures, and scores were first reported a little over a year ago in July of 2018. These are publicly available on hospitalcompare.gov and are updated once a year. The SEP1 measure is a complex set of 141 variables. Performance is reported at the hospital level. And currently, this is a quality measure, but many believe, as has been done in the past with other timely care measures like CVA and acute MI, that this could become a part of value-based purchasing in the future. I'm going to take a second to address the elephant in the room here is that We know that this has been a controversial measure, and people have concerns about whether all aspects of this bundle are evidence-based and lead to improved outcome. Nevertheless, we have lots of literature to support that early identification, early administration of antibiotics are things that do lead to improved outcomes. And so this is the stronger part of the step one bundle and where a lot of our focus is. Adam, that's a really good summary of SEP1. And I just want to reiterate that the purpose of this podcast today is not to relitigate the appropriateness of SEP1. That's been done extensively elsewhere. Can you tell us next where the Equal Sepsis Initiative comes into play? At the same time that CMS released SEP1, Equal launched the Sepsis Collaborative. 634 ED sites have participated since the beginning of the SEP1 Collaborative And so we can use data from this initiative to define step one performance as it relates to emergency departments specifically, but also to help you identify best practices and engagement techniques that you can use to improve sepsis care with your hospital. I think that one of the biggest impacts that step one has had is it's put the spotlight on sepsis. As this became a publicly reported measure, hospitals urgently wanted to partner with emergency departments to determine how to improve step one scores. This is a challenge given the limited resources in terms of time, money, local QI expertise, and access to actionable data. And there's also limited knowledge about resource deployment. Suffice it to say that we know sepsis is a big killer. We want to take care of our patients better. We want to make our hospitals 
look good for the good care that we know that we provide, but we're not always sure how to do that. Let's take a little bit of a look into the literature here to see how we're doing nationally. So this is an article by Barbesh that was published in 2018 in Critical Care Medicine. And this group looked at three different things in this article. The first was what hospitals were reporting step one scores. And it looked like the vast majority of eligible hospitals were actually reporting scores. And those who didn't report either didn't have any cases, their number of cases were too small, and then a minority of them didn't report for other reasons. They also looked at hospital characteristics that were associated with better performance on step one. Smaller hospitals, those with larger case volumes, and for-profit hospitals seemed to report the best scores. And then they also looked overall at what the step one performance was nationally. Compliance with the measure at the initial reporting date was about 50% with quite a bit of variability. And for a group of type A emergency physicians and other hospital clinicians, this is not the type of performance that we're used to seeing. This is a complex quality measure, and I think the performance overall is highlighted in that, in that it's an all or nothing measure. And so you must do all of the interventions that the patient is eligible for in order to get credit for it. And you can do everything right, and you could miss one component of the bundle by just a few minutes, and that, would, you know, that case would fall out, and you wouldn't have been considered to be compliant in the measure. This article also highlighted that reporting in and of itself is no small feat. It takes a lot of investment from hospital quality departments, and it takes quite a bit of resources in order to get this data. And this group had also previously looked at hospital attitudes towards step one. And I think this probably mirrors a lot of what we feel in emergency medicine. Hospitals, just like we as EM docs are, we want to focus on sepsis care because we see a lot of it and we know that it's an important thing, but we're also looking for guidance about how to do better. And there were also some concerns that step one extended beyond the evidence base. What about from the emergency department? As I mentioned earlier, not all sepsis cases, of course, present to the emergency department, although it feels like many of them do. And so this article specifically used preliminary step one data based on local chart review scores. And so this wasn't the CMS reported score, but it was the sort of preliminary score that would be provided by hospital quality departments. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. The article that Adam's talking about here is from Venkatesh in the Annals of Emergency Medicine from 2017. But the overall compliance rate was similar to what was seen in the Barbash article that we just discussed, a little over 50% with a lot of variability. And I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anyone that we seem to do well on the measures of checking lactates, obtaining blood cultures before antibiotic administration, and then administering antibiotics. And then we had more difficulty complying with some of the resuscitation bundle measures like administration of 30 cc's per kilo of IV fluids, repeating lactates, initiation of vasopressors, and then also with documenting a responsiveness to fluid score. This article was also helpful because while the CMS measure is reported as all or nothing, this gave us some more granular data about where we tend to do well in the emergency department and where we're struggling. So next up, Adam, can you talk about any data from New York, which we often highlight because the state mandates protocolized sepsis care? And the article I'd like to specifically ask about is from Khan in 2019 in JAMA. This is an article out of UPMC that looked at what happened in New York State after Rory's regulation was passed in 2013, which mandated protocolized sepsis care and reporting of outcomes. And they found a statistically significant adjusted mortality rate 
in New York compared to other demographically similar states that didn't have mandates. And so this is some evidence that all the effort that we're putting into step one makes sense. You may have concerns about whether there's components of it that aren't as well evidence-based, but this article suggests that shining the spotlight on sepsis, using bundles, and publicly reporting outcomes can move the needle on mortality. And that's certainly a measure that we all care about. I'm going to jump the gun a little bit here and get to the question that I'd really like to answer. Are these mandates and metrics actually working to improve patient outcomes, or are we just filling out a bunch of documents and checkboxes without making a difference? Yeah, so I think, as you would expect, the answer is probably uh, a little bit of both. I think the Khan article that we just discussed certainly suggests that, and at least the experience of one state that's a similar idea to step one, this wasn't looking at step one specifically, but the same type of intervention did approve adjusted mortality significantly. There was a review that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine last year from the NIH that actually looked at the evidence base behind specifically the administration of IV fluids. That work has been done elsewhere and suggests that even for cases that fall out of that measure, that we're not seeing mortality increases in those patients who aren't receiving the entire bundle. And I don't think any of this is surprising. I think the consensus that we need to focus on this. My practice has certainly changed as I used to think that we didn't miss sepsis as often as the numbers said. And when you really drill into it, you know, we're not great always that we think we know it when we see it and we don't always know it when we see it. We know the extreme cases, but we don't always identify those other ones. And so I think in that regard, this is definitely working as far as early identification. The question is, are all these aspects of the bundle necessary to achieve better outcomes or there specific ones? And I think that's where we parse out some of this data more. There's the potential to really drill down and figure out maybe this isn't a one size fits all measure and maybe there needs to be a little bit more nuance to it. Although I'm hesitant to say that as this, I think, is already the most complex measure that CMS has introduced. And I don't think anyone wants or likes the idea of adding more, you know, more uh, variables to this or more different branch points. All right. So we've looked at the background here. And the question is, where do we go now? And I think I want to make two points here. The first is that step one is here to stay. And I know I keep going back to the controversy around this, but I think when I talk to people from all over the country, these are the things that that people express concern about. And I I started to liken this maybe to the administration of TPA and stroke is that you may be a conscientious objector, you may have some question about the evidence base there, but this is where things stand right now. And so you can be a conscientious objector, but I think that we've got to get in line behind this to a certain extent. And I think there's good evidence that in doing so, we can take care of patients. And, And I think that's what we all care most about. The other things are secondary. It's nice to have a good score on hospital compare, and that's important that we're rewarded and recognized for the good care that we provide. But I think we can really look in the mirror and say, by doing well on this, we we really give our patients a better chance of surviving what can otherwise be a lethal disease process. And I think we also can agree that we all have room to improve in taking care of septic patients. That's what we want to focus uh, sort of the remainder of this talk on is if we've got room for improvement, how are we going to do that? And so that's where we're going to move into what we've learned from a couple of years of a number of sites, big and small, rural and urban, academic and non-academic that have been participating in the sepsis initiative. And to really get at the question, how do we effectively partner with our hospitals? I think a lot of us, once SEP1 became a publicly reportable measure, 
had our hospital administrators, our quality folks coming into the emergency department and saying, what do you need to do better on this? What can we do to help you? And we don't always have a good answer to that. And so I'm going to try to provide you with some ideas as we move into the second half of this webinar. So the first question here is, do we have a midterm report card? One of the options for participants of EQUAL is to report a quality or a preliminary step one score that in most places would be provided by the hospital quality department. That preliminary score that participants use to report in EQUAL ultimately correlates pretty well with the ultimate CMS reported step one score. And so this is a really helpful thing because the CMS score, as we've talked about a little bit, includes the, the denominator can be sepsis cases, patients who are, you know, end up with a diagnosis of sepsis. That's not specific to patients who come through the emergency department. And so there's certainly cases that would be transferred into your institution, patients who would develop sepsis after admission that would be included in that. But it looks like if you look at how you're doing from the emergency department and you're doing well there, that you're likely going to do well or you're going to do similarly with the score that's reported by SEP1. That's at least initially encouraging that there's a way to check your interim performance without waiting for the CMS score publication because that's roughly a year behind. Something I think a lot of institutions grapple with though is how do you explain the difference in the performance metrics when they're supposed to be measuring approximately the same thing? I think some of the, some of the reason that the performance differs when we're looking at oftentimes data provided to us by our hospital quality departments is using a denominator of patients who presented to the ED with sepsis. And that may be different than the, what's used, you know, and what's reported out by CMS, which as I mentioned, can be all comers who develop sepsis or who have sepsis at some point during their hospital stay and end up with the discharge diagnosis of sepsis. And so I think some of the reason that we see some differences is there. It's also possible that you're using the different exclusion criteria is used and so that some patients who are included in your local measure may ultimately be excluded or wouldn't be selected for analysis when CMS is requesting performance. And so I think those are two of the bigger reasons. So let's look at some of the sepsis improvement activities that groups report in EQUAL. And these are really divided into two broad categories. The first is implementation of best practices. And the second is engagement. How are you disseminating your participation in a sepsis initiative or an initiative to improve performance and taking care of sepsis patients to the rest of your hospital? And I think that highlights the fact that this has to be a, a group effort. And so like with, with many other things that are thought to often originate or to be focused in the emergency department, boarding being another one, it really extends well beyond that. And I think what groups have found, and we'll get into this a little bit later in more detail, is that it really takes hospital-wide engagement, not just departmental engagement, to, to move the needle here. So if you look at best practices, the first thing that groups reported were best practices in regards to screening for sepsis. And so we talked earlier about how early identification is important. And I don't think any of us have trouble identifying the patient who comes in with a fever, hypotension, and some urinary symptoms as being someone who's septic. But as we've started to look more into sepsis, I think all of us have realized that there's a lot of patients who may be septic, may not necessarily turn out to be septic, but certainly could be septic, who we're not capturing or we weren't capturing before we started shining this spotlight on sepsis care. And so there's a few different ways that the places have found to do that. And the way that I would use the things that I'm talking about here is you're looking at 
where you're having difficulties or where you think you're having your cases fall out. And if you're having a problem where you're missing the window on some of these bundled interventions because you're not identifying the patient as septic until later in their emergency department course, where you may have some opportunity to implement some of these things in order to identify sepsis earlier. And so there's a number of ways to do that. Some of those are automated things like using your EHR, or the power of your EHR to look at data, including vital signs or labs once they return and to trigger a sepsis alert. It may be that your standard screening in all patients who are coming into the emergency department when they're in triage, or you may be looking at the nursing order sets, but there's several opportunities there. Once you've identified sepsis patients, the question then becomes, how are you treating them? So treating sepsis like STEMI or CVA, you know, getting hospital resources involved by calling a code sepsis can be an effective way to get a number of important participants to the bedside to help make sure that we're getting all of the necessary interventions completed. Having dedicated critical care rooms or a team that may come down to the emergency department or a specific team in the ED who can help care for septic shock patients would be another opportunity here. I recognize that that's not an option for many people who are in smaller hospitals or even for those who are in larger hospitals, but if that's something where you feel like you're having some trouble Uh, in terms of taking care of those very resource-intensive, very sick patients, this would be an opportunity to engage with your hospital or with other departments in your hospital to look into this intervention. ICU co-management would go along with that, potentially having representative from the ICU who would come down for code sepsis patients or patients who have septic shock and to help co-manage them because, again, they can be very resource-intensive and can take a lot of focus away from the other patients who are in the emergency department. And again, harnessing the power of the EHR to have some protocol-driven care that can make our jobs easier and can make it easier for us to do the right thing. The final component of best practices looks at treatment. And so automating things here can be really helpful. Reflexing the repeat lactic acid if the initial lactic acid is elevated. This is a pretty relatively low tech, but an intervention that really moves the needle for people in meeting the bundle requirement for a repeat lactic acid. Again, having order sets in your EHR, and so you make it easy for clinicians to click through. You can have appropriate antibiotic recommendations. You can have some clinical decision support about patients who should be getting fluid boluses, patients who need volume assessment documented, and those components. And then Other opportunities that are things that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about when I initially started looking at this data were like patient self-management materials for high-risk discharges. Uh, I think a great case example of that is is when we're sending a patient home who has a fever and maybe a leukocytosis, is otherwise young and healthy, maybe has pyelonephritis and is feeling overall well, maybe has gotten a dose of antibiotics in the emergency department, but is going home and making sure to have specific instructions to them, I should say, about what should prompt them to come back to the emergency department. And then a standardized handoff tool as patients are being transferred to the ICU. And so making it really clear what's already been done in the emergency department, particularly when it comes to things that may be difficult to determine from the EHR in some hospitals like my own, that can even be the amount of fluid that's been administered And so the ICU can take over care appropriately and understand where you are in the middle of the SEP1 bundle. And then sepsis QI is another area for best practice where you can use 
some of those hospital resources that might be offered to you to get a dashboard together so that you can track compliance. And the nice part about that is a dashboard is going to let you do that in real time. And so you can monitor trends over a much shorter time period rather than finding out 30, 60 days later, you know, that it seems like something has changed in your department. And then you're trying to go back and figure out how to fix that, but you're already behind the eight ball. The dashboard can really be used to look at, you know, what happened today? What happened earlier today? What happened yesterday? Why did we have some fallouts on antibiotics or on blood cultures? And you can really dig into that quickly and I think more effectively in real time than when you're trying to do that retrospectively. And then providing your clinicians with some feedback. And, and I don't think this should be done in the form of slapping somebody's wrist and saying you need to do better, but really looking at this from a system standpoint, rewarding people when they do a good job and they're adhering to the bundle. And then looking at for our fallouts, what can we do to make this easier for everybody to do better and, and those are some opportunities to engage locally in sepsis QI in a positive way that I think can improve care and, and bundle adherence here. Man, that's a lot to unpack as far as what hospitals can do with their local resources to improve sepsis care. And there's a big menu of things that you can try. So can you drive home the message for us and tell us what has been effective where you work? So I work in an urban academic medical center. And when we looked at where a lot of our sepsis fallouts were occurring, we found that screening seemed to be the area where we really needed to focus and that we weren't identifying some of the patients who ultimately had ended up being diagnosed with sepsis early enough in their emergency department course. And so we tackled that in a few ways, and this actually applies both to the emergency department as well as throughout the hospital. We implemented an EHR screening tool that will fire either a SERS or a sepsis alert. And when that happens, we automated for SERS alerts that patients have a lactate drawn and for sepsis alerts that they have a lactate and blood cultures drawn. And that happens regardless of whether you think the patient has sepsis or not. So it doesn't matter if it's the CMO of our hospital or if it's one of the interns, nobody has an opportunity to stop that process, at least initially. And that took an awful lot of education to get buy-in from clinicians across the institution because Physicians, as physicians, we oftentimes don't like people telling us that we have to do things, but we were able to show that we weren't doing a great job of capturing septic patients. And so absolutely, do we check some lactates and some blood cultures on patients who aren't septic? We do, but we've also screened and identified a lot more patients in whom we weren't thinking of sepsis by doing that. We reflex lactic, lactic acids which has been a huge driver both of dispositioning patients by knowing what direction they're going and helping to guide our resuscitation, as well as adhering to the step one bundle. Areas where we still struggle have been in getting the, uh, the appropriate amount of resuscitation fluids administered in getting the reassessment of volume status or responsiveness to fluids documented. But for us, really using the EHR as best as we're able to automate some of these things and to take the burden off of the frontline physician or clinician has really helped us in, in this regard. So how hospitals or how emergency departments were engaging with the rest of the hospital and with their, within their departments was the second aspect. That, and there's a lot of opportunities to do that. And I would summarize this slide by saying that, as I mentioned briefly earlier, this needs to extend beyond the borders of your department. 
And so this, this needs to involve clinicians who take care of patients in your department, but also those who are taking care of patients on the general medicine floors in the intensive care unit. It needs to involve your hospital leadership, and then it needs to involve nursing leadership and some of the other folks who help take care of patients in your department. All right, so to wrap up here, it does sort of feel like it's, it's all about sepsis right now. It certainly seems that way sometimes. And whether you agree or disagree with the SEP1 quality measure, it certainly turned the spotlight onto how we take care of our sepsis patients. We know that we take care of a lot of patients who have sepsis, and we know that based on how we've been performing on SEP1, we've got some opportunity for improvement. The good thing is big hospital, small hospital, rural or urban, everybody has an opportunity to implement interventions here to improve how they take care of sepsis patients. These interventions don't all require large amounts of resources. And we also talked about the importance of engagement with folks throughout your hospital in order to move the needle here. That's going to wrap it up for today. I know there's a lot of strong emotions surrounding SEP1, but it's the measure that we have right now. And hopefully this podcast gave you some ideas on places where it's worked and some things that might be beneficial to implement or to change. I want to thank Adam for being here. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can find the rest of our ASEP Equal series earlier in the feed of this podcast or at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog, www.aliem.com. Thanks for listening.